the Wibbly Wobbly Tiny Wimey Podcast. I'm Talia Franks, media critic, fanfic enthusiast, and worth getting your heart broken for. And I'm Lucia Kelly, expert at applied analysis and big bad person. And we're here today to talk about School Reunion, episode five of series two of Doctor Who. School Reunion aired on the 29th of April, 2006. It was written by Toby Whithouse and directed by James Hawes. Reminder, time isn't a straight line. It can twist into any shape. And as such, this is a fully spoiled podcast. We might bring things in from later in the show, the comics, the books, audio dramas, or even fan theories and articles. With that out of the way, the Doctor likes traveling with an entourage. So let's get in the TARDIS. I gotta say, every time that I say series two of Doctor Who, it sparks joy. See? Series two does have things. It does have things that spark joy in it. Speaking of joy... Ah! What a segue! To our first guest on the podcast. Hi, Joy! It's so nice to have you here! Oh my goodness! Hello! Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Would you like to introduce yourself and what you're all about and maybe your sort of relationship to Doctor Who and what you might be doing with it? Sure. So I'm Joy Piedmont. My actual job in life, I'm a teacher and in Doctor Who world, I'm a podcaster and I organize actually recently during the pandemic a bunch of us in the black girls create community started organizing these virtual meetups for other fans of color and those have been really great and so now I have folded that into my community activity things I do things at conventions like Gallifrey one back in the days when conventions were a thing and stuff like that so I'm generally a I don't know a, a talking head person <laughs> Neat. Can oh, you talk and I have to my us own a- podcast. I forgot. Yeah, I was about to say, can you talk to us about your podcast and what that's all about? It's a bit different from ours, I reckon. <laughs> I'm the worst at promoting them, by the way. That's number one, because I always forget that that's a part of the thing that I say about myself. So I have two. The first one that I do is called Reality Bomb. My co-host and co-producer is Graham Burke. He is from Toronto. And he and I produce like a magazine style show. So there's lots of different segments. There's some recurring segments like Gallery of the Underrated, where a fan comes on to defend a very underrated episode. I've had Talia on to talk about Revolution. I can never remember which one is which, but they had written a really great article for Nerdist. And so I wanted to have them on to talk about it. And so it's generally like that kind of style. And then the other podcast I do is about the third Doctor era. So it is incredibly niche and incredibly specific and limited because it's only covering the third Doctor era of the show. It's called Five Years Rapid. My co-host for that is Kyle Anderson. And we're almost done. We actually are in the Sarah Jane era right now. We have one more story to record and then we are moving on to a different thing. We're going to continue to podcast together, just not in the same kind of format of show at all but yeah it's weird because it's been about two years of third doctor which has been great and I love it because I love classic who so depending on your release schedule and our release schedule your podcast might already be done by the time we release this oh right (laughs) timey-wimey the introduction of Sarah Jane was actually one of the first classic who episodes I watched the one where she's gets taken back to medieval England I Um, love the time warrior so much it's so good which I also love because 
of course, the original Sontaran was an Australian. Oh, so, like, the, the actor inside the suit, he was Australian. And so that's always nice. a fun time. But, yeah, the part I remember from the Time Warriors, like, in my heart and soul, is the moment when Sarah Jane is, like, so she's just travelled in time. She has no idea what's happened. And she walks into the castle and basically has convinced herself that she's in, uh, like, experience what it was really like in medieval England theme park and she's like this is great but the smell you could have done without that I don't think people need an exact recreation I'm like oh my gosh what a beautiful magnificent introduction to one of the best companions of classic it really tells you so much about her I mean that I think is one of the strongest introductions for any companion in terms of the things that she gets to do and how Mm. much you learn about her. Although I think that School Reunion does a really good job of reintroducing her because I came to Doctor Who through the modern show. I started watching it in 2012. I was working at a high school and all my students said, you have to watch the show that we really love. We love it so much because this is when Matt Smith's reign was at its height in America. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know, kids. I don't have time to watch another show. It sounds long because there had been six seasons at that point. I was like, yeah, that's too much. So I eventually did watch it and loved it more than they did (laughs) overall. (laughs) So when I saw this story for the first time, I had no context for any of the classic stuff. So anytime there was any little hints dropped of the classic series, it just went right over my head. Like I kind of knew that she was an old companion, but I didn't know how significant it was, but it still does a great job of bringing new people in, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, I love that, I mean, we'll get into the whole stupid, like, The fact that both the Doctor and Mickey are like, oh, it's old flames and like, doesn't it feel blah, 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 blah. But I really like the fact that it seems respectful of Sarah Jane and her journey Mm. and what she's gone through, what it meant that she was, surprise, surprise, completely abandoned by the Doctor and just left to fend for herself and what that did to her and where she's going forward. And we won't cover this in the actual primary show, but then, of course, she goes on to do Sarah Jane Adventures, which is its own other thing. She really steps back into that power and becomes such a important figure in so many people's lives. Yeah, I love the Sarah Jane Adventures so so much. It's definitely one of my favorite shows. I have the whole box set. But I actually haven't finished watching all of them. I never watched. So the Sarah Jane Adventures, the last season stopped because Elizabeth Sladen died. And I couldn't bring myself to watch the last season because like, I couldn't, I couldn't handle her being gone and watching the rest of it and it was just uh it was just a lot yeah I remember that day viscerally when the news broke that she had died and how emotional that was and how it reminded me a lot actually of I've been thinking a lot recently about the power of parasocial relationships and how people who you don't know can make such a huge impact on your life 
and who don't know you. Like the only other person where I felt even close to that and I was equally blindsided by by like how much it affected me was when Robin Williams died and like I was a mess for that whole day which made no sense to me because I wasn't particularly familiar with his work I enjoyed what he was in but he was never a favorite he was never someone I looked out for and it wasn't until you know it wasn't until he was gone that I was like oh wait he made a huge impact on me and how I saw the world And similarly with Elizabeth Sladen, who I was much more familiar with and had a much more emotional connection to. Yeah, it was a mess. (laughs) Yeah, for me, I hadn't been as familiar with her work. At that point, it was very soon after I'd started watching Doctor Who. So I burned through all Doctor Who up to that point, watched all of Torchwood, watched all of Sarah Jane Adventures that I could like what I had access to I wasn't able to watch that last season yet and then a few years later I ended up re-watching Sarah Jane Adventures but I still have never been able to make myself watch that last season (laughs) I'll watch it eventually um yeah sort of that like last little piece of her that I haven't wanted to experience yet because I know it's going to be the last bit of it Mm. on that somber note I feel like I'm going to cry, but also this episode made me cry twice. No, actually made me cry three times. When the Doctor and Sarah Jane first meet and he sees her for the first time and realizes what she's about, that made me start to tear up. I was like, I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. And then when she realizes that it's the Doctor, that's when I actually started crying. It made me feel feelings. And then when they said goodbye, I cried again. Which, of course, ties a bit into the fact that, like, David Tennant, a long fan of Doctor Who, like, Sarah Jane was one of his companions, right? This was about heroes meeting heroes, both in and out of fiction, which just tingles my little meta-loving heart. And on that note, the episode opens, and the very first person we see is Anthony Stewart Head! Literally the entire episode I was calling him Giles. He's so un-Giles, though. He's very un-Giles, but literally I could not remember the character's name. Mr. Finch! I could not remember the character's name. So in all my notes... Giles. Well, it was quicker than writing Anthony Stewart Head. Giles is in a real mood today. (laughs) Also, when I heard the music at the beginning and throughout the episode, it felt very buffy to me. It did. This episode does feel a bit Buffy. And I wonder if that was on purpose. Like as soon as they found out that they cast Anthony Stewart Head, it's like, okay, okay, this is our moment. This is our moment to shine. I mean, it's set in a high school. It's got a very, Doctor Who varies on the spectrum of how alien, how fairy tale, how magic the monster of the week is every week. Giant bats is closer to reality than it usually is. I usually like to think of Doctor Who and the way it varies like that is Doctor Who is several TV shows in one TV show. Literally, they took a lot of TV shows. They explore so many different styles and it's so many different kinds of shows in one show, even within one season. So the joke I like to make is that it's bigger on the inside. (laughs) 
And this is <laughs> a horror episode. And a lot of Toby Whithouse's stuff is horror tinged. The next time he writes for the show isn't until season five, but that's Vampires of Venice. And God Complex is probably one of the scariest things that the show has ever done. I think Under the Lake Before the Flood is straight up a ghost story like he really does a lot of scary stuff I think that's in his wheelhouse but the funny thing about the Buffy vibe Russell T Davies knew he wanted to do story in a school so knew that that's where this story was going to be set there was a writer assigned to do the episode and the writer decided I don't want to do this in a school I don't actually think I can write for the show and Russell was like I think I need a new person to write this episode <laughs> and gave it to Toby Whithouse and he was like I guess I have to write this episode very quickly so it's interesting how something was you know kind of rushed together because of that and I would guess I mean I don't know for sure I would guess that Anthony Stewart head was probably hired because of his association with school like I think the episode probably already existed in that way and already had a lot of that horror in high school vibe and they were like let's get Giles. <laughs> Let's do it. I love how he does saccharine sinister. He's got a very soft, alluring tone. It doesn't sound comforting at all. No, he's smarmy. He's like really slimy and ugh, gross. Slimy. But it's Giles. So you want <laughs> to feel genuinely comforted. I mean, it's so interesting because my first introduction to Anthony Stewart Head was actually Merlin. So my first impression of Anthony Stewart Head was this sour, dour, evil, bitter old man. <laughs> Which Merlin hadn't been cast or filmed at this point, but is bringing a lot of that energy to this performance. And so when I watched Buffy for the first time, it completely took me out how quickly I got attached to Giles and how much I loved him. Because <laughs> it's a completely different performance. And of course, Anthony Stewart Head is a phenomenal and very varied actor. He's been in a remarkable amount of projects. It just so happens that these three are his probably most popular. <laughs> well, see, the thing is, I'm the complete reverse. I started watching Buffy when I was like 11 or 12. I binge watched the entire series. My mom's friend gave me all her DVDs. So Giles was my first introduction as an Easter head. Then I watched this, which was sort of like a soft introduction to him being slimy. And then I watched all of BBC Merlin, but it was so weird for me to see him like that, that I literally forgot that he was Uther until you just said that. So it was just funny. I read a lot of Merlin fanfic. So Uther shows up a lot, but Anthony Swordhead is not the person I picture. <laughs> Interesting. Love that. Now that we've sung the praises of both Elizabeth Slade and, and Anthony Stewart Head, I reckon we should actually get into the episode. So we get her introduced into Anthony Stewart Head as Mr. Finch. He acts very suspiciously to a young girl who apparently has no friends or family and invites him into his office. And then we just cut cut to the doctor who is the new physics teacher. Yay! <laughs> I just am very disturbed about all the people that they imply that they eat. Right? Also, surely, I can't believe that only Sarah Jane is picking up, like, hmm, all of these young children are disappearing and they all happen to be employed at this particular school. Where is child support? What is happening? The other thing I had trouble suspending my disbelief 
was that there was only one child that wasn't eating the chips. Yeah. Allergic to potatoes. I don't eat French fries. That seems like an unusual allergy though. Not, my mom is also allergic to potatoes. But you're genetically related. <laughs> I'm talking about like- Someone in- else. Yes, other people. There are like, and okay, there's also a lot of people with food allergies. No, I totally believe that. It's just funny of all the things to suspend, like that didn't even, if they're kids in a school, of course they're going to eat the chips. Yeah, <laughs> I know, but like it also occurred to me that the school lunches are compulsory, but there's plenty of people who are allergic to stuff and whose parents would have opted them out of the school lunches and made them eat their own food. I'm sure there are others. It's just that this sweet boy, this sweet child is the one that we're focusing on. Yeah, I had trouble suspending my disbelief also that there were only two classrooms. I think there's more than that, though. There's, there's more. There's, that, that's a production like, issue. Shush, shush, they shush. They only had access. They only shot in two classrooms. Two classrooms. Doesn't mean there's only two classrooms. <laughs> like, where, who, who was directing all the students to the classrooms if all the teachers were either eating the other teachers or getting eaten? No, so they say, Mr. Finch says, they came in, they ate half of the staff replaced them with all their people no, not I'm half at the end of the episode but sorry we'll get so to it, yeah, yeah I mean at the end it's a smaller group of kids I just assumed it was a smaller school but I think also if the episode is working on you which it probably did not you shouldn't actually be thinking about those things I came from a very very small primary school we had I think a hundred students so that was never an issue for me to be like, no, of course, there's this small student body and they're all, <laughs> they're all in the one room. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> so we cut to the theme song and then we come right back to the classroom. And one of my favorite fan theories is that, <laughs> so the doctor does this whole thing. We have the same favorite fan theory. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, so the doctor does this whole thing where he's like, physics, 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 physics. And I always just assumed he was, you know, making a joke, breaking the ice, trying to introduce himself to the new crowd. Until I read a fan theory, which has become my favourite thing, which is that he is actually describing in the moment incredibly complicated and high convolute Time Lord physics, and the TARDIS is just censoring him. (laughs) So it sounds like he's saying physics, physics, physics. <laughs> and she's like, no. That's adorable. They're kids. You can't tell them all that. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite thing too. <laughs> the reason that's my favorite thing is because that is how language works. <laughs> so the doctor starts quizzing kids and maybe they could have understood Time Lord physics because they seem like they're all little mini geniuses. What interests me is that the one teacher comes by and says, Milo has failed me. But what has Milo failed him at? I think they were trying to get individual kids to do the computing because they escalate after that and they then take it up to, let's just sit them all down in front of the computers and have them do the work at the same time. I think they were just trying to use individuals and it wasn't quite working in the way they thought. Because we find out later on that they're trying to 
crack this theorem that will basically make them gods. Like, their species' whole thing is that they're colonizers. I'm annoyed by how much I like the way that they work. Like, when Mr. Finch is explaining, like, you know, we're colonizers. We absorb culture, we take what we like, and we leave devastation in our wake. And we do that with physical aspects as well. I'm like, that's a cool concept, though. <laughs> I hate how much that makes sense, and I hate how much we can intuitively understand it based on how the real world works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Feels like this is a monster that should come back. And it feels like such a Chibnall monster that like Chibnall would use. And it's an easy monster to bring back because they're always going to look different. It's funny that they haven't done it. Yeah, it would be really cool to bring them back because it can be like a reveal. Like, yeah. we don't know what this person, is. like we can't figure it out. And it's like, oh, wait. <laughs> I've dealt with these guys before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing about them that was striking me was the idea that they've changed themselves so much that their own oil is poisonous to them. Mm. I really liked that. I really appreciated that. I do like the parallel of showing how harmful effects of colonization harm everyone and things will come back to bite you Mm -hmm. Mm. if you turn on yourselves that much. I just thought that was a particularly good twist. I feel like Mr. Finch is a little bit in love with the doctor. Like I was definitely picking up some vibes. I think Mr. Finch is in love with what the doctor can give him. I think the doctor represents a lot of very attractive features not necessarily like i mean he wants to make the doctor a god and stand by his side (laughs) (laughs) i mean sure but that's out of context (laughs) i mean i took it to be that he needs the doctor on his side because he knows that the time lords are very powerful and he clearly knows a lot about them because he says like stuffy senators and blah 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 Mm. like so he he has their number but also makes such a point of talking about how much the thing for them is don't you want to live forever and that's the thing that he says to Sarah Jane and so the way that they could do that is if he takes the secret of time lord regeneration except he never explicitly says it and I don't think that means he doesn't want to take from the time lords but I think that is what's underneath there is he wants Mm. to steal the doctor's DNA yeah and that's the underlying threat right is that the doctor is the last of the time lords which is an incredibly attractive proposition for someone like Mr. Finch or as we later found out his true name is Brother Lazarus or Brother Lassa. Brother Lassa, which actually leads me to another interesting thing. So he calls all of them brothers, which I read either one of two ways. Either this is how language works, and this is <laughs> and this is one of those languages where when you're referring to a group of people, masculine is the default, even if the group includes people who are referred to in the feminine, because there's no gender neutrality, which is an annoying feature of languages, but there are some languages where when there's a mixed group, the sum total of the group 
is referred to in the masculine and the TARDIS decided to just translate everything as masculine, which that is how some languages work. Or two, all the creatines are actually masculine creatines and just some of them are women in their human form, which brings up the idea that there are gender non-conforming aliens in this mm. episode. Yeah. I definitely took it as, I guess it's a bit different. I kind of put it in the same space as the Slovene of like aliens are genderless blobs and whatever works, works. Like they have no context for gender in an earth sense. So they're like, I like this body. It feels right. I'm taking it. And in Slovene's case, it's I'm just choosing whichever body fits me best, literally. And in the Krillotane's case it's hmm I've observed these humans for a while now I'm taking this feature and that feature and this feature yeah so basically all these aliens are using masculine terms as the default because that's what English and a lot of other languages on earth tend to do but really most aliens are gender (laughs) non-conforming I just, you know me, I'm always trying to bring the queer agenda into, into everything I do. <laughs> well, absolutely, as you should. So Rose has been assigned dinner lady. Oh. So fun. Yeah, putting the women in the kitchen, I see. Yeah, and also I do love whenever we are reminded of how young Rose is and how she is just a teenager along for the ride. The sass the discontent, the inability to do her job properly. (laughs) Peak teenager. Like the fact that she just goes off and sits down with the doctor in the middle of her shift. Her supervisor is right. What are you doing? (laughs) Anyway, we get introduced to the idea of these chips and how tasty they are, how addictive they are. And that... People who are allergic to potatoes, FYI. I'm not alone. And how all the kids, most of the kids are eating them and Kenny's not allowed. So we also get introduced to this little dynamic, the little kids dynamic. So we've got the kids group with Kenny and Milo and Melissa and how excluded Kenny feels about everything. Poor Kenny. Poor Kenny. Just there with his Tupperware lunch. And then, and then Mickey. Yay, Mickey's back. <laughs> in the, the worst in the way possible. He's literally the guy in the chair. How, yep. how does Mickey still have access to all of these potential army documents, materials? Well, he doesn't. Torchwood is finally taking him in hand. They locked him out. <laughs> <laughs> it's been enough. And then it says Torchwood in big red letters on the screen in case you did not understand what was happening. They're like, oh, look, here's the repeating meme of the season, Torchwood. Mm -hmm. So we get some very awkward Rose and Mickey, just like, "Mm, like, God, just break up, just break up. Just do it. Just do it. It's physically painful to watch them together. (laughs) And especially because this episode pushes so hard and also 
huge discredit to like I feel like one of the big things that I push against with 10 rows is it makes the show makes the case the show is pushing the narrative that Christopher Eccleston is not sexy (laughs) (laughs) but like the reason that Mickey didn't care that Rose was off traveling with this other man who is apparently cooler than him in every other way is that like well there's no chance she'll fall in love with him because he's ugly and then David Tennant turns up it's like oh no (laughs) I think the show knows that Eccleston is sexy though Mm. I think Mickey doesn't but the show Mm. definitely knows (laughs) just makes me upset like I feel like a lot of Eccleston gets the short end of the stick in a lot of ways but I feel like one of the big reasons that is is that David Tennant just has much more of a magnetism well he's got more of a like passionate fan base that is pushing the fact that he is all of these things right Christopher Eccleston doesn't he's very pretty he's very talented right this isn't me disparaging David Tennant this isn't me pitching two bad bitches against each other this is me pointing out (laughs) (laughs) that Christopher Eccleston is a bad bitch and deserves respect (laughs) I love them both and I feel like I love them both equally but I feel honor bound to defend Christopher Eccleston more because David Tennant already gets so much love pretty much yeah but thankfully their conversation is interrupted by the fact that a dinner lady is now in severe pain and possibly dying Wait, no okay so my question is if she has like gone up in flames and died or Hmm. shouldn't there only be 12 creatines left maybe she has survived she's just in a severe state like they've locked the nurse's office because the bed has been taken up by this very severely damaged grillotine (laughs) who's just kind of moaning softly and sipping apple juice okay but then how is she okay enough to attack at the end of it all I mean no disrespect when I say this so please keep that in mind I don't care like I all of these questions that y'all have I'm like how how is this stuff still on your mind after the episode that you see which is all about Sarah Jane and it gives you so much character development for the doctor and Rose and Mickey like There is so much that actually happens with the characters here, which is actually such a rare thing to get in Doctor Who. They hardly ever spend this much time where the characters just sit and talk about their feelings. And there's a little bit of sciencey weird alien stuff going on. How do you still have questions about this stupid garbage? It doesn't matter. Like it's not supposed to matter. They're counting on you to be so invested in the reunion of the doctor and Sarah Jane that you're not going to worry about this other stuff. It's just the thing that's happening. But Joy, but Joy, if we don't analyze this at a minute level, how on earth will we justify the science score at the end? I love the way they did this because, of course, like you said earlier, Joy, 
so many people watching this episode for the first time would not know who Sarah Jane is. Like, they have no context for this. And so what they do is that they have the sort of double reveal. So we get context that the doctor knows who Sarah Jane is and is clearly emotional about it, is clearly really moved. So we're like, okay, this is an important person. And then it's not until later that it's revealed that this is an old companion. And this is Mm. where we get into... This is where we get into the whole Rose versus Sarah Jane thing. I hate it. I hate it. Yeah, it's a low point. Why are you pitching two bad bitches against each other? It makes no sense. I don't believe Sarah Jane would stoop to this either. It doesn't fit her character at all. It doesn't. But I don't believe it of Sarah Jane. It's a point where the writing is weakest because they're clearly going for we need these two people to be in conflict with each other just a little bit so that Rose feels a little bit insecure and just jealous enough to question what the nature of her relationship is like with the doctor because then you get that beautiful moment between the two of them where he finally says here's why I don't talk about these other people and the way that they got there was by having this stupid weird jealousy between Sarah Jane and Rose and I think the problem I have with it is not that Rose is jealous I kind of expect that of her especially in season two we've already seen a little bit of immaturity from her and she's so weird and petulant in Christmas Invasion and like I don't know I can believe it of her it's the fact that Sarah Jane is then buying into it and being part of the petty cattiness that feels so inauthentic and so unlike her character that we know and I feel like a better writer would have written those scenes so that Sarah Jane was not engaging in it. Mm. I can totally believe a situation where Rose is trying to be catty and Mm. Sarah Jane is just shutting it down every time. And then Rose gets increasingly frustrated by that because she's got all of this emotion, all these feelings that she's not able to process or talk about properly. And then that leads to a much more authentic and much more emotionally realised bonding moment between Sarah and Rose when they Mm. finally do settle. Mm. It's a really good point. Yeah, I definitely wish that that's what had happened because I feel like Sarah Jane is so much better than this. Like you said, I expect this of Rose. And this is not even my... (laughs) Your Rose bashing. (laughs) But it's not even because of my dislike of her. It's because, you know, she is like... Well, at this point, she's probably 20 because they've been traveling for a while. But we don't know how close to her birthday she was picked up. And time doesn't exist. (laughs) But the point is that she is young and she's naturally insecure and she's seeing what happens when the doctor disappears and I think that it would have been totally natural for Rose to be reacting this way it just feels so inauthentic coming from Sarah Jane and I feel like as wonderful as an introduction to Sarah Jane this generally is, this aspect of it really does her a disservice as an introductory episode. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to better Sarah Jane. I love Sarah Jane in Journey's End, which unfortunately I think is the only other time we see her from memory. But yeah, this one 
it's real hit and miss in terms of representation of Sarah. And then they all decide to break into the school. They meet up. Can I point out a really funny moment in this little part of the episode where Mickey is now with them? And yeah. the doctor says, says to them, like, team. Oh, wait, I don't like calling you a team gang. And mm. I was like, oh, my God, did Chris Chappell steal this? Because then <laughs> the third thing, the third thing that the doctor says is, comrade like he doesn't know quite what to call them all and so his thing is team gang comrades and I was like oh Chris Chibnall totally stole stole." yeah I was thinking that too team gang fam is so close yeah that's exactly what I was thinking you know I was like that's what 13 says but the the difference here is that (laughs) 13 sticks with it I also thought that there's a really interesting parallel between nine to tens transition and 12 to 13s transition for me Mm. and it's hard for me to always put my finger on why those transitions feel so similar to me because like you would think because it is a showrunner change for 12 to 13 whereas for 9 to 10 it wasn't a showrunner change that was 10 to 11 but I feel like 10 to 11's change felt so almost seamless for me because 10 and 11 feel like such similar doctors <laughs> that even though it was the start of a new era, a new doctor or whatever, they felt so similar in character that even though the companion changed, even though the arcs changed, the doctor still felt like at their core not I mean, always the doctor is the same person at their core, but at their surface, the doctor felt so similar. Whereas nine to 10 is such a big shift. But then with 11 to 12, that was also a really big character shift. But because of the anchor of Clara, because of the anchor of it being the same showrunner and having similar themes, 11 to 12's transition also felt very smooth to me. But nine to 10 feels like a very sharp shift because even with Rose smoothing the way, Rose with nine feels so different Mm -hmm. from Rose with 10. And Martha and Donna are just such different companions than Rose that it just, yeah. So it's just the sharpness of this transition Mm -hmm. um, just feels very similar Enjoy. I'd like, this is something I would have brought up before, but Lucia hasn't seen any of the recent episodes, which is- um, What? Lucia yeah, no, I, I dropped out halfway through Matt Smith. I'm glad I did not reveal any spoilers. <laughs> I'm totally cool with spoilers. I'm totally fine with spoilers. Like some major stuff happens. <laughs> I feel like- this is just the nature of the show. This is a spoiler-heavy podcast, and I spoil it all the time. <laughs> I feel like this is a big shift in the way I'm thinking about spoilers now. Because <laughs> I'm like, wait, but does this count as a spoiler, even though this is a spoilery podcast? I honestly don't. I just want you to discover certain things. Don't feel in any way restricted. I don't mind. But back to my original point, do you agree with me that <laughs> that 9 to 10's transition parallels 12 to 13? Yeah, it's. I think it's similar. And, you know, 13, when 
she debuted, most people noted that her doctor had a very similar energy to David's in terms of the optimism and kind of like the bright sunniness. The difference though, the big difference is that she hasn't had any of the broodiness, like, like the emo doctor meme, which I mean, that is David Tennant. <laughs> Jody hasn't had any of that until this most recent season in the last few episodes. And I'm so happy that she's finally getting that because I think it makes for a richer portrait of the doctor. But yeah, it's interesting that, <laughs> you know, you go from the kind of like dark tortured doctor, you know, in nine and 12, and then you get this brighter, sunnier disposition that in some ways is even more moody. <laughs> than the previous mm. incarnation. And I'm glad we're getting a little bit more of that from Jodie now. Yeah. We've talked about how Ten is made of emotion. Like, he's just all emotions all the time. Mm. Like, Ten is at Ten all the yeah. time. And so whether he's feeling joy, whether he's feeling excitement, whether he's feeling fear, whether he's feeling anger, it's always at 100% all the time. Whereas Nine is a lot more reserved which makes Eleven really interesting because Eleven is kind of a mix of both in that Eleven puts on this sort of joyful front a lot of the time. He's very childlike and joyful in the mask that he presents, but that hides a real darkness that does not have time to shine very often. Like dark Eleven is who I love, but that's when the mask drops and that's when you sort of see his history and see his real power. Yeah, that's also really interesting when you think about 12, because he definitely has a very firm, hard exterior where it feels on the surface, he doesn't show as much emotion, but inside there's this really intense, deep well of emotion that is just fierce in how overwhelmingly powerful it is in particular his relationship with Clara and the depths that they go to for each other is terrifying like their friendship is honestly one of my favorite parts of the show is how much they care for each other to dangerous ends and the lengths that they will go is outrageous and I hate how much I love it because it's so ridiculous but also the way that he can also be so like gentle which I think is a lot of how he acts in his relationship with Bill I just I love 12 so much he has such a hard exterior but it's really just to protect so much softness inside and one of the things he says is that he doesn't like hugs and he says it's because you can never trust a hug it's just a way to hide your face and it's just I just love 12 so much I have so many 12 emotions can't wait to get to them <laughs> So they're all in the school. They all meet up. Mickey finds some rats and the doctor makes this disparaging teasing comment about it. All of the little things, the inbuilt misogyny between Sarah and Rose, the clearly disparaging 
feminizing comment that the doctor makes against Mickey. And then later, the fat phobia in the cafe is all just not great. Nasty. I hate it. I hate it all. Back again about the potatoes thing. Kenny not being able to eat the potatoes. It's implied that he's not able to eat the food because he's on some sort of special diet. Yeah. And that also feels like fat phobia to me. And you could have just said that he had a food allergy. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. The character of Kenny bothers me a little bit just in terms of like you know he's a bigger kid clearly doesn't fit in with the crowd there's this like I'm not sure if this is just my heteronormative gaze or whether this is actually written into the show but there seems to be a little thing between him and Melissa and like clearly something that could not be pursued because of who he is and how he's perceived as a person and all of this stuff it's feeding into that classic like oh are you fat and have glasses and maybe have curly hair you are a nerd and not worth it as a person I'm like (laughs) stop that (laughs) yeah also Mickey says surveillance, if you ask me, is just another way of saying go sit in the back of the class with safety scissors and glitter. I would love to be in the back of the class with safety scissors and glitter. I also (laughs) want to know, like, God, what kind of education are children getting in England (laughs) where that's the thing that they do for, like, that sounds terrible. I don't know. It was pretty bleak. No, I would love to be sitting in the back of the class with glitter and, Mm. you know, I mean, I need safety scissors. I would probably hurt myself otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... So Mickey's got this chip on his shoulder because he doesn't believe that the doctor sees him as a fully-fledged person and that Rose doesn't see him as a fully-fledged person. And to be honest, he's right. (laughs) I... 100%. So he and Sarah kind of bond over that. So Sarah and Rose have been at each other's throats this whole time. It's all very unsavory. And then finally Rose confronts him about it and is like, yo, what the fuck? Are you going to just abandon me? Like you abandoned this other girl? (laughs) That actually really cut me because he says doesn't matter and she says it does if I'm the last in a long line and then he says as opposed to what and I was like wow it's a cold reaction right very cold like ooh, that was mean and this is like so we've had fun with 10 right like we've had the Christmas invasion we've had new earth we've had tooth and claw right But in all of those episodes, we've seen the happy side of 10. We've seen the joyful side of 10. We've seen the like, the looking for the happiness, looking for the joy in the world, looking at the world in awe, right? Even in Tooth and Claw, there's that iconic moment where the werewolf is tearing out of the cage and the doctor's just looking and like, that's beautiful, right? Like he's so overwhelmed in the moment that he doesn't register the extreme danger that they're in. And this is the first time we really 
see it's not the first time we've seen dark 10 and it's not the first time we've seen rude 10 either there's been this ongoing thread throughout the whole thing of like oh i'm rude now oh this is a new flavor for me but this is the first time we've seen the doctor either nine or ten be specifically and deliberately cruel to rose which is a really interesting development this is the first explicit sign of just how toxic this relationship actually is at its core. Mm. When he's under so much stress, because he had to have that whole conversation with Sarah Jane, where she's like, why didn't you come back for me? And she's making him feel really bad, as she should. Mm-hmm. Um, because have either of you seen her last story with the doctor her last adventure i mean spoilers for like 40 year old show but the adventure ends and he gets an urgent call from gallifrey he's like oh i gotta go there and he's making preparations to go and she's like oh this is gonna be so interesting i get to see gallifrey he's like you can't come (laughs) and he's like you're not humans aren't allowed in gallifrey and he's like i'll just drop you home and she was like what what and then so it's kind of played off as like super casual. It's very strange as a companion leaving story because there's no sense of this is the last time you will see this character. And he drops her off in Aberdeen. He thinks it's Croydon. He messes it up because of course he does. And her reaction at the end of that story is like, oh, doctor, I'm in the wrong place. And it's really casual and very strange. And what I love is that this episode retcons that by showing like, no, she was really angry about it. And also she did not know how to kind of like go on with her emotional life. Like obviously she's still a journalist, but like she hasn't really had any relationship with any other person because she's still pining over the doctor. Just sad. Mm. I really feel for her. So she's been pushing him. And at this point when Rose now starts pushing him, he's like, it's humans. They want so much of me. And so I think that also drives the cruelty where he's just like, what do you want from me? And so then he reveals this deep source of pain for him where he has to say, you can spend the rest of your life with me, but I can't spend it with you. And he's like, I'm going to keep going and you're going to die. And it's such a lovely tie-in at the end when Sarah Jane is the one to say to him, everything ends, everything has its time, which is also kind of her way of saying, listen, I get it. It's okay. Like, our time mm. had to end, which is why I really love this episode so much because it's this beautiful little closure for a character who really didn't get a good leaving story. I mean, she comes back in Five Doctors, but that's all crazy nonsense, which I feel like it, where it fits into continuity is like trying to figure that out is not even worth it. So if you think about where she left off and the last time you see her and the relationship that she had with the doctor in that classic era, it basically treats her like a modern companion, which I just love mm. so much. Do you know any of the behind the scenes stuff? Do you know why that was such an abrupt change or difference? I think they just wrote it badly. So one of the problems (laughs) with Sarah Jane is that she's fabulous with the third doctor. She comes in like gangbusters. I mean, you saw in the Time Warrior, right? Like she's a journalist. She asks questions. She's super logical. She's fearless. And she can figure things out on her own. So the idea of her being in this situation already investigating totally a Sarah Jane story already. Clearly this is something she'd be doing. When she gets with the fourth doctor, her first season, Harry Sullivan is also traveling with them. And Harry is a little bit of a misogynist. And so they play off each other. Once Harry's gone, 
they devolve Sarah Jane more and more and more until she is more and more childlike, like a lot closer to Rose in terms of the characterization, a lot more immature, a lot more helpless, not as interesting in terms of the things that she can do or does in the episode. And I don't know offhand enough of what may have happened in terms of the change of writers at that time. But once Leela comes in, who's the next companion, it goes into its horror phase, like its deep horror phase. And so I don't know if, if, if it was part of that, but I think it was just her time. And they had stopped writing her well a long time before that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, so yeah, this is where the energy kind of ramps up. Mr. Finch is overhearing, so he finds out that the Doctor is a Time Lord. They decide to amp up the plan. They're going to break this paradigm. And all the crew is together again and trying to figure this out together. We've got the Doctor, Sarah, Rose, Mickey. K-9 makes an appearance. And then Kenny also joins the crew. (laughs) So we've got a whole gang. (laughs) I really love that whole we are in a car scene. <laughs> I love that K9 doesn't make it easy for Mickey. It's like, no, no you do the no. work. I've worked it out. Do right. it for yourself. Okay, okay. Speaking of K9, just that line at the end where Sarah Jane says, he replaced you with a whole new model. He does that. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> Twist the knife. <laughs> But yes, Joy, you were going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, the the K9 just repeating the the instruction, we're in a car, just reminded me, I have a friend who, when I used to play Pictionary with him, if you, he would draw a picture and be done, and then you'd start guessing, he'd never tried to amend his picture. (laughs) If you guessed wrong, he just kept pointing at it. (laughs) And that is what I think of when K9's like, we are in a car. We are in a car. (laughs) Like, oh, that's that's Ross just pointing at his picture, not changing his instruction. Thank God Mickey gets there in the end. Mm. <laughs> no, and mm. it's totally fine destroying school property and just like you know. I know it. who's who's picking up the bill for that. I wonder. Not the doctor. And that's not, not his Mickey. car. It's not his car. Well, I mean, Sarah Jane does get a new car in the Sarah Jane Adventures, and it's a really that is cute true. Car. Maybe it's Mickey helped cute. pay for it, or oh, it doesn't. Wait, no, mechanic? that's Mickey's car. Is it Mickey car? has a yellow beetle. <laughs> but yeah. Mickey's car. <laughs> Wait, no, I thought Sarah Jane's car was, was green, though. Maybe he gave it a paint job. He definitely had to help her out because he must have felt guilty about, like, crashing his car into the school. <laughs> yeah, he really def- not cool. He definitely It was a nice car, too. It was a nice little sensible, nice. like, yeah, master like- kind of deal. And I'm like, like a little okay. hatchback situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I... Okay. Join Black Girls Create during the month of February for Black Wizard History Month, celebrating Black magical stories, characters, and fans. Attend weekly events, participate in the daily social media challenge, and more. To register, go to blackgirlscreate.org. So, just I just wanted to say one one more thing before I think we should probably go into our favorite and least favorite moments is the idea of the god maker again is making David Tennant a god <laughs> David Tennant's god complex no not David Tennant but 
10. How dare you, how dare you accuse this Presbyterian sweater dad of having a God complex? Why are you a Presbyterian sweater dad? Because oh, I, that is, bec- it is because for a really long time I followed a Tumblr that was about David Tennant and that was their username. And so now that's what it's stuck in my head. Oh my God. Okay. Well, point 10, not David Tennant. I think it's because Tennant has the word 10 in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tenet 10 in it. Anyway. So anyway, so 10 has a God complex. So does 11. But especially 10. And I think this is like very much, as we said, we're just trying to explore and keep track of all the times where people are trying to make 10 into a god. It keeps, mm. And I think it's just really, really fascinating to see, see it pop up here again. And Mr. Finch is definitely at least in love with the doctor's brain because he has that line later where he says, eat him if you must, but bring me his brain. Oh, that's gross. <sighs> That's so interesting. I hadn't, I mean, I hadn't thought about earlier moments in, in the series as dealing with the doctor as God or God-like because it gets so prominent in series three and four, you know, because it, it's yeah. it's so, it's such a thing with the 10th doctor, right? It's but, but yeah, you're it's- right. It does start early and I, it it is a huge part of this story too. I, Russell's just obsessed with it. <laughs> Yeah, it it starts, we talked about this in New Earth too. The doctor doctor says when they're all quarantined in the hospital, he says, if you're looking for a higher authority, you won't find one. It stops with me. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And he's literally referred to as a lonely God. Like there's this whole prophecy about like the lonely God will come and see the face of Bo. So yeah, they start Um, early. And it's nice to know that at, at least at this early stage, Doctor is very much against that. Like, it's very much pushing against being mm. put in that box. Is like, no, that's not right. He got seduced by it, though, right? Like, there's that moment where he's like, I could save them all. Mm. And Jane who pulls him back. Which yeah. I think is important that it's Sarah Jane who pulls him back and not Rose. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Well, I don't think Rose would have had any authority to do it. Like, I don't think we would have believed it narratively. Well, it carries so much more emotional okay. weight coming from Sarah Jane because she's the one who actually lives the experience and doesn't have a choice. Like, right. so much of Ten's God complex journey is about him refusing to acknowledge and process trauma Mm. and he can do that because he's got a time machine right like (laughs) he doesn't have to like and so a lot of particularly the end of 10 is just about him avoiding processing (laughs) it's just about like jumping from one thing to the next right and not stopping and not thinking and not feeling which as we've established, is core to his character. So he's shutting off a major part of his own being in order to just survive day to day. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of Eleven and how when he's trying to avoid his like fixed point of death or whatever, he is talking, like he goes on that whole rant where he's talking, I think at that point it's Dorian's head, who said something about how like you can't run forever doctor like something about time um 
I think he says like time catches up to us all or something like that. And then the doctor says it has never laid a finger on me. And then he makes a phone call because he's trying to call the brigadier to like have a drink with him. And the brigadier is dead (laughs) because it's another one of his classic companions who has died and who the doctor can no longer visit, even though he has a time machine. Because, you know, once he's learned that he's dead, he it's at that point, it's fixed. And so it's just, it's interesting to see how throughout it's the doctor's companions that he's known the longest but really known with like such depth that they've truly gotten to know him. And I mean, like, obviously the Brigadier wasn't like in this instance, actively doing anything to pull the doctor back, but it's just interesting to see how companions are used, Mm -hmm. reel the doctor in. Yeah. Um, I like this idea of the doctor running and how that ties into the way that he goes through companions and it's a little bit of a joke in this episode but it's also serious because it is very sad that he's had so many people in his life and I think this is definitely the first moment in the show for me especially because you know when I was watching it the first time I'd only ever seen Rose right and she's still the first companion that I know of and I didn't have the context for how many people he had traveled with prior to this and it's the first time you understand he can live forever theoretically in terms of regeneration like he could just go on and on and he doesn't like endings and so he'll just keep going and he can't look back so he can't go and visit the brig once he knows that he's dead because it's too painful and he's always trying to avoid those feelings and emotions and doesn't like this is why the thing that you were saying about clara and 12 is so difficult for them because the doctor really doesn't like to get that close with people. It's too much, which I think is a little bit of a problem in the Moffat era. But anyway, so I like that this episode really lays out. This is the doctor's main problem. He cannot save all of his friends from dying naturally, right? Like just, he cannot extend their lives. They live short lives and he will be alone forever. And here's this like bat dude saying, I have a thing that I can make for you. We could make it together and everybody can live forever. You can go save your timelines. And the only reason he then realizes that's the wrong thing is because it has to be, Lucia, like you were saying, like it has to be a companion who was with him previously, right? And has been left to say, it's okay. Like everything ends and that's how it should be. Rose isn't mature enough to have that contact. She was just saying, wait, are you going to leave me? Is this going to end? Like she was so freaked out. Right. So it's not going to be her. It's going to be the person who understands like I'm human. My time with the doctor will be short and companions just don't know that when they're still in it. You know, they think it'll go on forever. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's just reminding me of Donna and just, oh God, I don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about our (laughs) moments from the show. Joy, you're our guest. Would you like to go first? Favorite moment. Well, we've talked about it a lot, but it doesn't change the fact that it's my favorite moment. I love when the doctor says, you know, you can spend the rest of your life with me, but I can't spend the rest of mine with you. I hate the way that Rose has been in this episode, but I love that we get this moment out of it and that you're finally getting a little bit of realness from him. You know, he's just been pushed and pushed and pushed. And finally 
you know, you get to see this is really hard for him. Like, this is not a good life. It seems all like fun and games and, you know, they run around and through space and time, but it kind of sucks for him and he's very lonely and oof, it just hits me. I mean, I guess the runner up moment would be like the, the cute little you've redecorated moment in the TARDIS <laughs> and Sarah Jane. Always love one of those. Yeah. I would say my favorite moment also has to do with Sarah Jane. It's Sarah Jane's goodbye scene makes me cry every time. Mm. Um, especially because the doctor says, oh, it's not goodbye. And then she insists that he say it and that they have proper goodbye. And yeah. I'm getting choked up just talking about it. So I'm going to stop. Mm. <laughs> yeah. No, and especially because I've never had that context, Joy, that you've given us of what their last goodbye was. Like that feels so much more significant now that Sarah is sort of keeping the doctor in line and keeping him accountable and being like, yeah. you have a responsibility to the people that you travel with. Mm. Say goodbye to me is... Oh, I'm getting emotional. By the All way, right. continuity problem in the next episode, it's like none of this ever happened because he just is totally willing to leave Mickey and Rose behind on that ship. It is because it was not filmed in the same block. They filmed like it was not meant to go in this order. I just need to point that out because it bothers me every time that we get this beautiful episode and this moment of like clarity for the doctor. And then the very next episode, he does the different thing. He does the opposite <laughs> of what he just learned. It's very frustrating. Yeah. The girl in the fireplace. I, will I used to love that episode. We will bring it up later when we actually discuss that episode. What they do to Madame de Pompadour. Muffet! <laughs> before we get off on that tangent, I do just want to say, again, my favorite moment is like when he does like say the goodbye, she forces him to say the goodbye and he says, my Sarah Jane. Mm. I just, I have a lot of feelings. Yeah. That's a good moment. And I'm going to go with when Sarah stops him. Mm. Like that moment is so, and like Elizabeth Sladen, man, she's so good. And especially the dynamic, because of course, Sarah had three who was much older than her or looked much older than her and was much older. And now we've got Sarah Jane and 10 who looks much younger but is still older. And I feel like all of their dynamic is concentrated into that one moment where she steps in front of him and brings him back to earth with that sort of OG Sarah-ness, right? Like her argument is logical, mm. but it's also based in emotion and that's what makes it work. Mm -hmm. is that she's like this is how time works this is how life works this is how everything in the universe works you cannot be a god right mm -hmm. it would be a corruption 
of you you would become a god and you would be worse for it mm-hmm. and it's time to let things end and it's the way that she delivers the line the way that the music swells and the lighting is gorgeous and it's just chef's kiss mm. that line has honestly gotten me through some of the darkest points in my life it means a lot to me and I think is the epitome of why this show matters to me so much because like yes it has gross aspects to it and things that could be better but at its core I feel like the emotions to this show are so good and so fundamental in how they have helped shape how I see the world and how I think about things and also how I feel about things and have just given me context to feel my emotions through television in a way that a lot of other I mean I feel like that's the power of media you know but it can really it can make people feel things and it can help people through their feelings and Doctor Who has definitely done that for me that's beautiful on that note what moment did you hate the least Talia (laughs) hate the most rather what moment did I hate the most probably I would say probably Mr. Finch eating that little girl at the beginning of the episode (laughs) it's not not funny but it's funny (laughs) it's just I mean, yeah, it's not funny, but I understand why you laughed. It's just, it's so creepy. And it's like, Doctor Who is a children's show. But from Jump, they have this little orphan girl eaten by the headmaster. Mm. It's super dark. Every now and then, Doctor Who gets like real dark. And you're like, wait, hang on. Did that really just happen? I get that children's shows can be dark and I'm not saying that children shouldn't ever be exposed to dark realities in our world but like I watched this when I was relatively older but I feel like it would also freak me out as a kid the idea of my principal eating me yeah I I wonder how many kids went to school the next day and were just like I'm sick (laughs) I want to say It is a really weird, rare thing, though, for Doctor Who. I have a friend who, anytime there are children in an episode, if he sees that in a preview, he's automatically grumpy because he firmly believes that, and this is largely true, when children are involved, they're never actually in peril. And this is an episode where immediately the first kid you see, gone. And (laughs) it really almost never happens. The only other time I can think of is Thin Ice with poor little spider. (laughs) Poor little spider, the little hat's gone. It really almost never happens. I think those might be the only two times it happens in at least the modern show. There really weren't a ton of kids in classic. Yeah, and I didn't think of any other kids who get marked in the new show. So it's like the only I mean, other two I remember, and these might not count because they're technically figments of Donna's imagination, but the library episode and only because Catherine Tate fucking floors me with that performance every time I watch it but like but they're just gone they're gone but like got eaten (laughs) (laughs) 
Also, the scene where he like has a toothpick after they eat. Oh, mm, it's gross. It's so gross. It is. <laughs> no, the reason it's bad for me is just because he insists on having the human form instead of the bat form. And that just reeks of cannibalism. Yeah. Mm. Pretty gross. What was your least favorite moment? All of, I mean, it is not a moment, all of the fighting between Rose and Sarah Jane, but the specific moment that I hate is when they're trying to one-up each other with the monsters. Number one, because it is pointless and very petty. Like who gives a shit which monsters you've fought? And number two, it's a kind of cutesy way to like put in little references to different classic stories, especially the things that Sarah Jane talks about. Like when she says mummies, Pyramid of Mars is a fan favorite. She talks about Loch Ness Monster, Terror of the Zygons, also a fan favorite. And so I'm just like, okay, I get it. It's like name dropping. It it is. It's a little bit like name dropping. And so the fact that it's kind of obvious fan service in the middle of this scene that I don't even want to be happening because they're arguing. Just don't care for it. That's also my least favorite moment. (laughs) But especially because that's how it gets resolved. Like suddenly they don't have an argument. Like it's so cheap to do it that way. Their whole storyline just reeks of not thinking about women complexly. But that scene in particular is the epitome of it. And especially because then that turns into them making fun of the doctor together right like it's not actually better they're just not (laughs) fighting with each other anymore (laughs) i picked i know who i want to be the adam i'm struggling to figure out how i can justify it so i'm willing to settle for a secondary adam don't agree with my choice but i would like to make the doctor the adam I knew you were going to say this. I had a feeling. I was tossing up between whether it was going to be the Doctor or Rose. I was so like, this is my secondary. I think the Doctor should be the Adam. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see it, but he's also not the one who's controlling kids and then eating them. <laughs> villain does not mean Adam. You don't have to be the villain to be the Adam. I know, I know. The category is the worst. Is the doctor the worst? <laughs> A lot of thinking going on. Do you know what? Because last time on Father's Day, what ended up happening is we nominated the Rose Nine dynamic <laughs> as the Adam was the worst. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, the Rose Jack Nine is the worst in that. No. no. Who's the worst in Father's Day? I mean, just off the top of my head, Jackie, because she's so combative and I understand what she's doing narratively, but sometimes I just get very frustrated with characters who are stopping our main characters from doing things because she's like, what's this? Or what's that? Who's this person? I'm like, please just go away. Oh no, we're big Jackie apologists on this, on this podcast. Generally. Anyway, but no, so what ended up happening is we ended up nominating the nine rose dynamic as the Adam, as the Mm. worst. Mm -hmm. I'm contemplating whether we do the same here and we nominate the Sarah Jane rose dynamic (laughs) as the worst. 
no, I don't want to do that. I want to nominate the doctor companion dynamic as the worst. This doctor companion dynamic, though. Specifically. Like, specifically the 10th doctor companion dynamic as the worst. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm good with that. They all need to go to group therapy. <laughs> they do. So badly. Is there a therapist that could handle the doctor? Hmm. I'm sure there is. Do you know what? This would never happen because it's a crossover with a show that ended 20 years ago. But <laughs> um, so we've brought up Buffy in this episode. My mum and I have been re-watching Buffy from the beginning and including in that, we're also watching the spin-off Angel where you follow... Um. Angel goes to LA and he starts a detective agency with Cordelia and Wesley and it's delightful. <laughs> but one of the main side characters in Angel is this character called Lorne, who's delightful. And Lorne is a demon. He's got full green makeup, little red horns, and he is the owner of a karaoke bar a demon karaoke bar and his like skill as a demon is that if he hears you sing he can see into the deepest parts of you and so it's sort of a karaoke bar slash therapy session and every now and then they just go to lawns and sing a bit get a little therapy in like, I dig it and it's the best he's the best character it's so good and I'm like you know what the doctor and Rose need to go to Lorne's bar and just have a little sing-along and Lorne can sort them out. <laughs> It'd be so good. Hey, we are officially on another tangent, so let's move this along and get to- Rating and ranking. Sir. I think production. five out of five on everything. <laughs> Is that your final answer? <laughs> Well, we always know acting always gets a five out of five apart from... Always get a five out of five. Which is why I said apart from when it's atrocious, like in the Christmas invasion, when choices are being made. <laughs> so we have the five out of five for acting. Five out of five for rewatchability, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Writing. Eh. A three and a half. Four production. I actually really like the production of this episode. It also uses more sets than normal, which I really like. So often Doctor Who will be confined to maybe three or four sets and they'll just reuse them a lot. Whereas this one, we've got the school, we've got the TARDIS, we've got the cafe. They use outside a lot more. There's a lot more outside filming. Mm-hmm. Um, I that last scene was beautiful. Mm. Really noticed that last scene with Sarah Jane's goodbye. I think that's a lot of why I love it so much. Obviously the content is nice, but also it's just beautiful to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the science. I think the science okay. should be fun. The science? Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes, it's good. It makes sense. I'm so happy. So, Joy, for context, science, I recognize it's a sci-fi show. 
Okay. You just want the internal logic to make sense. Exactly. It's about yeah. internal okay. logic. I could say you could give it a five out of five. I mean, I feel like Toby Whithouse knows what I might ding it a little bit, like maybe a four and a half out of five, only because I think that the data and the computery stuff doesn't make as much sense as the Krillotains as a, a creature. I but. really liked the idea of the Skasis paradigm, actually, and the idea that the code needed to be, cr- the reason I love it so much is the idea that in order to crack the code, you needed the imagination and the ingenuity of, of someone who was, who was like, who is a child and who was younger and has that like sort of that sort of like imaginative spark Mm -hmm. that especially that line about how they're not just using like how they're about how they're using their souls to crack the code I thought that was a really I just really liked that idea because I think it it the idea that it plays on how like the brain when it's younger has more potential like the idea of using of using the potential of brains as computers particularly young brains as unethical as it is makes sense scientifically Hmm. (laughs) i want want also very unethical and they shouldn't be doing it but it makes sense there's a logic to it that i appreciate i really like it as well for the the double reason first is that it too often there's this sort of separation between science and art and like science and imagination and science and like love for the subject or creative thinking and so much of science like actual like on the grounds breaking news science like people who are actually pushing science to its limits and making the breakthroughs are doing that because they're thinking creatively and they're thinking with passion and they're thinking with love about whatever their particular favorite sort of element of science is. And so it really, like, it highlights that aspect, which I really liked. And there was another, oh yeah. And the second aspect I liked, Joy, you brought up the computer thing. (laughs) Except like, doesn't it just bring you, doesn't it bring you delight? Doesn't it spark joy to think of one of those dinner ladies sitting in front of the computer making the program? <laughs> they had to make it though. <laughs> doesn't that spark a little joy? <laughs> I mean, it is certainly hilarious. And like the graphics are very, very amusing. They. <laughs> I also found really amusing the fake typing. Yeah. <laughs> also, my all-time favorite. Not me. I started to my favorite moment, but my favorite moment related to the technology was how Mickey just pulls the plug. He fixes yeah. thing by unplugging something from the socket. So, drum roll. This 96. is exciting news. Ninety-six. It got an A plus. Woo! Well-deserved. Richly, richly deserved. Mm. Beautiful. 
such a good story. So thank you so much, Joy, for coming and guesting with us and having such a fun, it's been such a, it has been a joy to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I, I really, I loved watching this again because I have not done a ton of rewatching of Doctor Who during the pandemic unless it was for podcast homework for lots of various reasons. And I certainly have not revisited series two in quite some time. So it was really nice to be reminded that there's a lot of really great stuff in, in, in these older pockets of the modern show. So it was a real pleasure to watch. Yeah. And, and I'm so glad that you joined us. Thank you so much. And you're always welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey podcast. We hope you enjoyed this adventure with us through space and time. You can find us elsewhere on the internet on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram at WibblyPod. Follow us for more Wibbly Wobbly content. You can find out more information about us and our content on WibblyWobblyTimeyWimey.net and full transcripts for episodes at WibblyWobblyTimeyWimey.net slash transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at wibblywobblytimeywimeypod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other platforms as it helps other people find us and our content. That's all for now. Catch you in the time vortex. <laughs>